you're, you're listening to The Dollop on the All Things Comedy Network. This is a bilingual American history podcast where each week I, Dave Anthony, read a story from American history to my nemesis, Gareth Reynolds, who has no idea what the topic is going to be about. It's not, it's only for me what you're doing. <laughs> Gareth walked into screen when I. Like I'm hosting. Intro- like you were hosting. You did walk into screen like you were being called out Please on The Price is Right Reynolds, or something. Yeah. Yeah. And then out you walked. I Dave, say there's not a lot of live performance going on, so I'm trying to replicate it in some way, and your support would be appreciated. Now, we will, go, we will go from the top, this time with lights and music. Everybody, places. I don't know what's happening. This is uh, the dollop. This is a bilingual American. Gareth Reynolds, who has no idea what the topic is going to be about. Okay, so just like for Dateline. people listening at home, Gareth That's how you do it on Dateline. Walked behind, just now walked behind the wall, and now he's completely missing his cue. You're listening to the dollar. Gareth on- Reynolds, who has no idea what the topic is going to be about. <laughs> okay, and now he's coming up from the, uh, from the ground, so it's all working. And called it, quote, his jam pad. Jam pad? I'm the fucking hippo guy! Dave, okay. My name's Gary. <laughs> My name's Gary. Wait. Is it for fun? And this is not going to become the Tiggly Podcast. Okay. This is like Adam! On a five-part coefficient. <laughs> Come on, Reynolds, let's play! Now hit him with the puppy. <laughs> you both present sick arguments. <laughs> no sleep tell hippo! No sleep tell hippo! Uh, action part. Hi, Gary. No. Nicely done, my friend. No. No. <laughs> So here we are, Dave. We're in. I'm assuming there's no more parts. Oh, uh, yeah. We're going to start a new topic today. What? <laughs> I'm not doing part three. I decided to just move on uh, to a different topic. Well, that's good too because moment. Nobody feels the momentum. We're not at a point. And we're where... doing. We're doing a little essay I wrote, and and I don't actually need you to say anything. This whole podcast. I just want you to listen, and it's called the greatness. Of Benito Mussolini. Oh, dear. <laughs> and the show has taken a right turn. Hello, I'm Michael Tracy. No, listen. Jesus. John Brown Part 3, or as I call it, Attack on Harper's Ferry. Now, when we last left off, there had just been the Battle of Osawatomie, where John Brown and his fellow abolitionists inflicted a lot of damage on a we far sh- larger pro-slavery force. We should call him John Wick Brown. After what? Oh God! A hundred percent. Just a hundred percent. John Wick Brown. Yeah, the puppy. His, uh, slavery was his puppy. Although right. I guess it would so, be well, whatever. You get the point. I get the point. I think slavery would be his puppy, wouldn't it? No. Well, maybe. but no, because it gets killed. Yeah, they kill it. So he would be. It would be. It would be the right. It would be. It would be the uh, the rights where the the his the. Right. The organizational structure? Yes. The organizational structure of assassins would be his? Sure. No, that's not who he's fighting either. He's, fi- he's just fighting certain corporate entities within the uh, world of assassination needs. He's fighting the establishment. 
Boy, I wish you had never brought this. Same up. here. Or you had same just here. said. Same or you here. Had just said John Wick Brown and left it at that. I should have just gone left with it. The puppy part. I kept pushing. Yeah, it was a. This was a mess. Anyway, uh, after uh, John Brown's victory at uh, Suwatomi, um, this showed abolitionists could be dangerous, and John really was the dangerous. physical. Yes, and John Brown was the physical embodiment of that idea. Uh, and he took advantage of his new celebrity status, and he headed east on a fundraising campaign. Okay, all right. To get money to put back into the fight against slavery. Great. He was looking for financial and material support to fund future anti-slavery battles. And uh, Kansas, at this point, had cooled down a bit from when it was bloody Kansas in the previous yep. episode. Because uh, the new governor... Pro-slavery, the aggressive. Uh, well, it's still it still is, but the 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 fights have slowed. You know what I mean? The that, battles, the level of violence. Right. Uh, the new governor John W. Geary demanded armies disband while offering clemency to both sides. So he's like, "Look, I'm not going to arrest you guys for killing each other." Uh, but just the only th- condition is they just had to stop killing each other. So stop the violence, and then everybody gets away scot free. But I would, keep up with the violence. I would take that. Start deal. arresting people. I would take that deal it's so second. fast. Yeah, I would. Yeah. Right? I'd be like, hey, look, look, we did it, but it's kind of I've been bothering me that we killed all those people. So I'm gonna just take care. What? I think I might be a banker. I don't know. Who knows? Are you what? I don't know. No, How hard is it to bank? Uh, I'm done with this side. That's what I'm saying. I'm going for the clemency. Maybe I'll be a banker. I don't know. Shopkeeper. They need those. Hey, Clem. Whatever, Clem. Doesn't bother me. I'll be a banker. Weak. Weak. Assistant manager, Clem, to you, pal. Why don't you you open a bank called uh, Weak Shit Bank? We don't do anything. Well, because I just don't think that that is a really smart advertising angle. Oh, I have another idea for your bank. I'm going to lie down and cry bank. It's better than the... I don't, I'm not looking for... I think I'll go to one that's already established. Thank you very much. I didn't say I was starting okay. one. <laughs> try, try Wells Fargo there. I think they're... Um, I, my guess is that their practices are top-notch and will be that way forever. Take care. Okay, bye-bye. Bye. Uh, By the way, Wells so- Fargo's treatment of clients has more sequels than john wick oh my god it just it's just endless it's How the zombie company, bank when 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 america when the american government decides to shut down wells fargo uh, you'll know we're not heading towards fascism right right <laughs> yeah i mean how many, chances, like how, how many chances how many chances so we've been um, stealing your money a new way. It should be called. <laughs> this is what it should be called. It should be called Oh Wells Fargo. Oh Wells Fargo. <laughs> yeah, I, I like a I like a bank that takes advantage of people and tries to get them kicked out of their homes during a pandemic. Yeah, like the, the, the you're just like, hey, don't I come to you for withdrawals? No, no, we come to you. <laughs> Wells Fargo, we're withdrawing from you. <laughs> All right, so uh, so John, with his uh, just-released sons, Jason and John Jr., remember he made that deal at the end of the last battle to get his yeah. sons back, so he waits for them to but get one out. one of his sons, right, after one of his yeah, sons. Yeah, I mean, right, right. yeah, yeah, they had a real tough time. They were tortured and, and brutalized. 
Um, so the, they head east, uh, and they stop in Ohio, Illinois, New York, and Boston, and then they reunited with their family in North Elba, New York, for the first time in 16 months. And this is all part of a fundraising uh, thing. And in the first months of 1857, John traveled the eastern seaboard looking for funding. Okay. He introduced himself to influential people like the Secretary of Massachusetts, State Kansas Committee, abolitionist ministers, and William Lloyd Garrison, founder of the anti-slavery newspaper, The Liber- Lib- Liberator. Uh, and John entertained them with stories about his Kansas battles and talked about Kansas's dire, dire political situation. Okay. Right? So it still looks like if they hold the vote that it will become a pro-slavery state. Right. He won over a lot of influential abolitionists. By the end of the fundraising run, he had landed the backing of what would later be known as the Secret Six. Well, some, somebody leaked it. They, they were transcendentalists okay. who quietly provided the most money to him. Okay. Um, now, as far as transcendentalists, some were pacifists. Uh, about half were pretty racist, and others were aggressively progressive. So they kind of ran the spectrum. I'm surprised the racists snuck in there. Okay. They yeah. sneak in everywhere. Well, they're more just about, I, I mean, I don't know how to describe it. It's like they're, uh, they believe in intuition almost. Um, so uh, John even befriended Henry David Thoreau and Ralph Waldo Emerson, both of whom idolized John to a godlike degree. Wow. That's quite a fan group. Yeah. You can, uh, I, I can just imagine the things I would like to make Henry David Thoreau do. A lot of Emerson also known for not being really, wait, what? Henry David Thoreau is a douchebag. I mean, I don't know if people are aware of that. He was not a great guy. Well, Ralph Waldo Emerson was, uh, extremely intense. So if he's intense about something, that's very intense. Yeah. So you could probably get those guys to do shit. They, wouldn't otherwise do if they thought yeah. you were godlike. Yeah. I'm just saying from a cult perspective. Anyway, there were more and more are journalists. You, I'm sorry. Are you John talking about starting a cult, a human centipede with Thoreau and Emerson? That's what I'm talking about. Okay. felt like you were leading there. So more and more jo- journalists were following John everywhere and they would embellish his stories for Eastern Eastern papers. Americans were now loving reading about John Brown, the character, regardless of their opinion on slavery he was just an entertaining thing to learn about. And, and probably within that, even if you are pro-slavery and you're entertained by it, that thaws your, you know, that shows a different, opens you up to a little different thinking, potentially, hopefully. Potentially, but not a good one, because he's, remember, he's violence personified, so. Right. Their, their previous idea of abolitionists is that they were all weak. Right. And now here's the first guy that's like, oh, by the way, I'll fucking hit you with a pipe. Yeah, right. Yeah. Um, uh, so in August 1857, John returned to Kansas, where he found the slavery issue being resolved fairly peacefully. The fighting seemed to be over. Feeling as though there was nothing left for him to do there, he went back to Iowa. Well, and then he ended up staying there for three months uh, because he got malaria and he had to recover, and he also had a back injury. So he's there for three months. Jesus. Uh, after he had healed, John decided to pursue. He must have a lot of time to think, and he said, "This is the time. I'm gonna." He's going to go after his lifelong goal, which, as we've talked about before, is to attack the arsenal of Harper's Ferry in Virginia. Okay. 
So a lot of guns he, are being made. Is as part of him just pining? Like he, I mean, he's just like we said in the last episode. I mean, he's like, I'm going to die for this. So he's really just like full on pedal to the metal. Yeah, I think he believes that it's a worthy cause to die for. He believes it is such an injustice that until every man is freed, then his then your life doesn't mean anything. Which he has a is, never ending checklist, really. Now, John had already shown the plan to Hugh Forbes, who is a British soldier who fought the, in the Italian Revolution and was now a journalist. Uh, Forbes wore a green velvet jacket, fringed doe-skin boots, an ostrich feather in his hat, and a cane with a silver knob. Ugh. Hello, I'm a douchebag. Speaking of knobs. Uh, I would, uh, excuse me, do you have a douchebag store here? I'm looking for a new jacket. Um, excuse me. I, no, no, no. A deer could have potentially died of natural causes. I want the female. <laughs> what is, is that what he's getting? Is that what it is? Would it be deer a boots? Female, uh, is a doe, what's, a, what's the, uh, you should know, you're the animal guy, but isn't a, a doe is a female deer, and what's the baby buck. deer? A baby deer? A, yeah, um, what's their name? A buck, a doe, and a Bambi. fawn. Right? Fawn. Bambi. Fawn. On. Yeah, so it's a, he had a female deer uh, boots. Okay. If you have a male deer boot, it's not as good. It smells like dick. <laughs> so <laughs> the plan was to attack Harper's Ferry with 25 to 50 men, both black and white men, and free slaves at the nearest large plantation. Then use this larger force and expand the fight. Right. right? So. so it's the kicking off. It's his kicking off point. For the war against slavery. And Dave, making the bold assumption that all the uh, slaves on the plantation are going to want to join your army of people who are going to fucking kill these people and try to end slavery. That's correct. A minor leap of faith. I think this is a a sort of a blind point in history. Um, I think you find a lot of men who have a righteous cause and and they think that all others uh, within that area will also jump to that cause, and you know. Um, but he's going. I mean, I, I'm making light because he's going to. I mean, if he shows up, if he if he goes to that plantation, I mean, he's going to double his army right there. Yeah, you'd hope so. Yeah. So Forbes actually disagreed with the plan. Forbes did not think the slaves would respond during a surprise attack. So Forbes didn't think they would take arms. He thought they'd be shocked and maybe a little scared. Forbes also has an ostrich feather on him. I mean, that's a great reason not to listen to anybody. It's a douche barometer. (laughs) So Forbes' idea was to lead small raids to free slaves, one or two raids a week. Then uh, after a while, so many slaves would be fleeing north that capturing them would be futile. And using, and this would be like a terror raid. So using consistent terror and chaos would cause slave slaveholders to to just abandon slavery. That was. Well, his I know whose plan I'm voting for. Right. So uh, the two men disagreed, uh, and and that really came down to their faith in what the slaves would do. Forbes believed the slaves should be notified in advance. What what is it? Who? if not the raids we would lead to, to anarchy? Send out e bites. <laughs> Whereas John 
was certain if the slaves were given a chance at freedom during a raid, they would rise up and grab weapons. Yes. Right? I mean, I would, yeah, I mean, you never know, obviously, but one would assume that if you're like, hey, I have a better option than this, you know, I mean, again, this is like you've put people in a position where they have nothing to lose. You would guess that they would, you know. Yeah. Okay. I see both sides. Uh, So John shrugged off Forbes' opinions. Believing over 200 slaves would join him on the first night at Harper's Fair. Man, they're not going to, are they? And it wasn't just about freeing slaves. To him, it was about terrorizing the South into complete emancipation. Right. So in March 1858, John met with Dr. Alexander Milton Ross in Boston. He was a Canadian-born physician and scientist who had devoted his life to abolition after reading the book Uncle Tom's Cabin. Now, for years, Ross had made trips to the South, posing as an ornithologist, uh, doing research, but he was actually arming slaves and directing them to underground railroad stations. So that was his cover. He was a bird man, and then what he was actually doing was arming and freeing slaves. Now, Ross, at this point, had helped hundreds of slaves escape and had nearly been lynched when he was caught in uh, Mississippi. But despite everything he had done, Ross wrote of John, quote, I have been in the presence of many men whom the world calls great and distinguished, but never before or since have I met a greater and more remarkable man than John Brown. Now, there's something about a man. And when you have a strident belief, when you believe strongly in something, people are attracted to that. Oh, yeah. Particularly when it's a righteous belief. Yeah. So. Uh, John was going to recruit more at uh, an anti-slavery convention he was putting on in Chatham, Canada. Now, at this point, he'd only raised about $600 in Boston. He'd hoped to raise more. He met with Harriet Tubman to try to get her support, uh, to try to get her connections to uh, get Canadian blacks who had escaped to fight in his, his battle. So at this convention, 34 blacks and 12 whites attended. None of the biggest abolitionist leaders came, however, because John was technically still a fugitive and they were worried about the legal consequences of attending. (laughs) I mean, it it is like all that he's going through to, I mean, the tons of people are going through, but that, you know, and they're like, I just don't want to, I can't be seen with him. It's like, imagine being him. I just, just the fact that he, like he's, he's literally already fought on the field and he's putting everything he is into this. And these people are like, I can't go to, I, you know what? I can't go to a, uh, it's like a convention and he's there. I just, uh, it, it, I can yeah, meet him in a keep... dark shed near a creek. Yeah. Um, so uh, at the convention, John gave a very impassioned speech. An election of officers for John's future fugitive colony was held. The positions were given to both black and white men, which was a revolutionary concept unheard of in 19th century America. They drafted and signed their own constitution with the central article being on racial equality. Not freedom, racial equality, which we still do not have. Despite the symbolic success of the convention, John only recruited one man for the Harper's Ferry Raid. And even worse, John discovered that Hugh Forbes, Mr. Ostrich Hat Man, Uh-oh. had told the plan to several Republican senators. God. So now the plan is out there in the open. And this made John have to postpone the attack again. And probably furious. 
Yeah. And now he has to disguise himself. Yeah. Uh, he, he, he started using an alias Shubal Morgan. Well, so he hadn't planned on saying it until someone asked him, obviously. <laughs> and that's, and that's the comic book name. Yeah. Did you get the latest, uh, <laughs> did you get the latest Shubal Morgan? Cobbler. What's his name? Shubal Morgan. Shubal Morgan. <laughs> so simple cobbler fell into some nuclear waste and became John Brown. <laughs> so he discusses what to do with the, his six secret Boston backers, and they wanted to ma- to go uh, to Kansas, make his presence known there, so that would distance right. himself from Harper's Ferry and make it seem like a Harper's Ferry thing is a rumor. Cause I'm sure there's a lot of rumors. Right. So like, get out there, do your thing. Everyone think no, he's just in Kansas doing his thing. Yeah. There's a lot of rumors about a guy like this. So on December 19th, 1858, John learned a slave named Daniels was in Kansas and was asking for someone to rescue his family who were about to be sold in Missouri. So pretty common thing for uh, slaves. Uh, you have a family and then the owner does because he wants to or because he's in financial trouble and he just sells your family away and you never see them again. So this guy wants to stop that. John didn't think a raid uh, to stop one sale was worth risking it normally, but possibly to attract attention and distract from the Harper's Ferry plan, he formed a raiding party of white and black abolitionists and led them into Missouri. I do think at this point, I think he's always using white and black people together because I think that strikes more fear into the pro-slavery people. I think if it's all black people, it's what they'd expect. But I think when, he, when, when any, and I think that's, can, that's, what, that's what makes the BLM protest so totally. scary yeah. to the powers to be. When the races come together, the other the people in power get fucking scared because then there's numbers involved. Yeah, when they're, so, the t- um, tactics of division don't work any longer, they're like, uh huh. So he forms this raiding party and he leads them into Missouri. The group splits into two smaller units. And hey, we'll do they... white guys, black guys, huh? <laughs> no? no. Okay, you're right. I'll stop pitching. Someone else, tell- let's pick teams. Let's do a dodgeball style. So they both go attack different places. Daniel's owner was held at gunpoint and his family were uh, freed. Uh, they also took some supplies from the owner for Daniel's family to have. That's fair. Get a, a, little cocky, a little cocky on the way out. You know what I mean? You're like, also <laughs> some of your tools. Oh, feeder went off. Some of your tools and uh, some of this food. Don't you move, motherfucker. And also uh, <laughs> your bench. I think I'm going to take actually some people from your family now that I'm here because I'm just sort of screw you, man. Uh, pro-slavery people would later claim John took money, pocket watches, wagons, and oxen. So, of course, they use it to, to propaganda like, no, he's taking more than he should. But he's really just taking what a family would need it's like to survive. what you had in a house fire when their insurance is asking you. Yeah, totally. Totally. So altogether, both units freed 11 slaves. One slave owner was killed. When they reached Kansas uh, with John's unit, one of the slaves had a baby. So now they're 12. Jesus. Okay. Um, the baby was named John Brown. Wow. And by this way, to this day, if, you're, if your name is Brown, your family's name is Brown, and you don't name your child John, whatever the gender, you're failing. Okay, sure. 
Papers on both sides of slavery condemned the raid because they were worried it would kick off another round of violence in Kansas and Missouri. The governor of Missouri took out a $3,000 bounty on John, and President Buchanan took out a $250 bounty on John. Sorry, wait. There was a $3,000 from the governor, and the president's like, I'll do a small fraction of that (laughs) with our federal budget. How about much less? All right. Take a bank, less money. I'll leave the tip. And this was in all the national papers, the raid, the, the bounties. At this point, oh, John mocked the bounty when he heard about uh, Buchanan's bounty, as you yeah, just did. I, I bet he was, yeah. He, was. he, said, he said he was going to offer $2.50 for the arrest of uh, President Buchanan. Okay, sure. People are like, huh, it doesn't make sense financially, but we should try to arrest him. So sarcasm hasn't made its way here yet. It has not. Um, So, right, it's blowing up. At this point, John uh, couldn't get a lot of help from abolitionists in Kansas because they don't want fighting. One settler said, quote, he could strike a blow and leave. The retaliatory blow would fall on us. Mm -hmm. Well, then fight. Yeah, I mean... Um, I think that's John's answer. Well, then why don't you pick up a fucking gun and fight? Because they're actually people's lives are on the line. Right. Uh, so the raid also caused Missouri slave owners to move 20 miles from the border and hire guards. So th- they would move to Missouri now. Well, they're already in Missouri, but now they're moving 20 miles away. Oh, 20 miles away from the border. Right. They're putting they're some like, distance right. between they're them. Like, and- we'll actually live in Missouri now. We're thinking of actually living here for a little while. Which is a which is a, sort of a double thing on the battlefront. If you're fighting something yeah. that is deeply entrenched in capitalism and you cost it money to exist, you're harming it. Yeah, and I mean, you know, that is retreating to some extent. So, like, clearly, yes. yeah, there's you know, something's working. On January twentieth, eighteen fifty nine, John set off with the now freed slaves. Uh, he was trying to get them to Canada, but it's a brutal winter. They had to uh, elude capture the whole time on the journey. At one point, they sought shelter in a tavern, but news of the group being in the tavern quickly spread. One of John's men would write, quote, We now learned that there were about 80 ruffians waiting for us at the fort. We numbered 22. All told, or men uh, black and white, we marched down upon them. They had as good a position as any 80 men could wish, but the closer we got, the farther they got. (laughs) So John's legend is now so big that the ruffians, when it comes time to fight, are running away. So they're all big talk. They line up, they get ready to do it, and then as the moment comes, they get scared. Yeah, yeah. Battling John Brown's like the high dive. From the ground, you're like, no problem. A guy who believes deeply in his cause is someone who's not going to back down. Well, and the amount, so, the amount that people talk about him, you would be like, there's just a lot of shit. You would be like, uh, that's him. Yeah. You would think he was 20 feet tall. Yeah. So uh, by the time uh, this particular uh, skirmish was over, John Brown's men captured three of the pro-slavery ruffians. <laughs> so, so 80 of them lined up and waited, right. and then they all ran, and they captured three. And three were slow. Uh, the Leavenworth Times wrote, quote, Old Captain Brown is not to be taken by boys, and he cordially invites all pro-slavery men to try their hands at arresting him. That's so now the pro-slavery players, 
papers are just mocking them. Right. And if you, I mean, yeah, I, you would be intimidated by that. You'd be like, well, I don't want to try. Yeah. Uh, so the escape, this escape to Canada went on for 82 days. It was 1,100 miles. Oh, my God. But they did evade capture. Uh, they were helped all along the way by the Underground Railroad. The further east they went, the more John found people who supported him. He was greeted with enthusiasm in uh, Grinnell, Iowa, and given money and supplies. Uh, total shitbird Alan Pinkerton gave him $500 in Chicago. On March 12th, 1859, the now 13 fleeing people, because another baby was born on the trip. Sure. Uh, they entered Canada. I'm and also now- naming it John Brown. Well, that's very nice of you, but that'll probably be very confusing. But I, there's nothing else I would name it. You're the only thing. Yes, but we already have a John Brown, and I'm a John Brown, so that'll be three. It's a little heavy. I should point out I've also changed my name to John Brown. Terry, there should... We need to slow down on the John Browns, everybody. I'll change my name. I'm changing my name to what you're changing it to. Okay, this is untenable. Hi. Hi, I'm George Foreman. Oh, that's got a good ring to it. These are all my George Foremans. Oh, <laughs> How many, how many boys did George Foreman name George Foreman? It was like eight, I, right? I think there's something. I can't remember what it is. I don't think he actually did name them all that. Oh, I, he didn't? I don't think so. There's so, like, he might have, but I don't believe like they all go around being called George. Like, I think. Right. I'm sure they went by their middle name. No, but, but they, I, I think they were I don't you think, think there's something different. Yeah, I do. I, I mean, if if I, really break it down, if he named everyone, he was like George again, George again. And then I think it was that one of them was Georgina. You'd just be like, George, you have a problem. Georgina. Yeah. Did he name the girls? I thought I I who knows? Are you looking it up? Yeah, because okay. it's too. I would great. love closure uh, on this. Pe- people need closure on this one. I agree. We're not George normally twelve. Be- okay, George Foreman has twelve sons and uh, children. Five sons, seven daughters. His five sons are George Jr., George III, known as Monk, George the Fourth, known as Big Wheel, George the Fifth. This is getting better. George the Fifth, fifth known as Red, and George the Sixth, known as Little Joey. <laughs> oh my God. I named all my sons George Edward Foreman so they would always have something in common. <laughs> no, I mean, look, I mean, I love George Foreman, but thinking, uh, thinking is not the best. <laughs> wow. Okay. Well, I'm ready to meet up with Big Wheel and Little Joey. I don't know about you. Oh, my God. Jesus, it's amazing. God, he so, did? yeah. His so, between March and September. Like, George. Oh, I don't. It's not about you. Enough. How lucky is he that he stumbled into the onto the George Foreman grill? I mean, as they all are, as all of these celebrities are, when someone's like, "Hey, here's an idea," and they're like, "I'll do anything." I, I had a George Foreman grill. Oh, I always, I always enjoyed the uh, Hulk Hogan plate better. That was. <laughs> So between March and September, uh, John relaunched his fundraising campaign throughout the North. He gave lectures, delivered speeches, and recruited volunteers to take Harper's Ferry. In June, he met with John Cook in Virginia. He was a friend who had lived in Harper's Ferry for over a year, so he had basically gathered vital information for John. Right. Okay. Great. 
Uh, next, John needed to find a location to house his volunteers. And then he was in Virginia, and he and his sons met a local slaveholder. And John introduced himself as Isaac Smith and said he was a farmer from New York, and he'd come to Virginia because of the rich land, and he wanted to set up. Okay. The slaveholder holder went for the story uh-huh. and helped the Brown family secure a rental agreement at Kennedy Farmhouse, which was just five miles from Harper's Ferry. <laughs> so simple. Well, buddy, it seems like you and I see eye to eye pretty much. I may as well hook you up. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, dummy. Hey, and by the way, you seem really obsessed with the ferry. We got a lot of great sites around here. Okay. So you don't even, I mean, don't be obsessed with that. We got some of the biggest bales of hay you ever seen. Oh, we got a donkey with the longest tail you're ever going to lay eyes on, mister. And we got a kid who's got a kind of third eye. Not fully, but something's on his neck. It's weird. So there's a bunch of sets to see here. The kid with the neck eye, hay, that tail I was telling you about. Not the tail, the donkey tail, not the story. Anywho's a be What? Mostly just interested in uh, Harper's Ferry. Thanks. Yeah, I'm telling you, it's fun, but man, there's a lot of other stuff you can do. (laughs) I don't want your third eye, boy. Nobody does. That's the problem. Kid can't find a home. You'd think a boy with an extra half eye would be able to find what he's looking for, but shit, that ain't the truth of this kid. He's a lost soul, man. All right, I'm fixing to get out of here. Go piss on something. All right. Later on, that's, man. That's all your. That's what your plan is tonight. To go piss on something. I'm gonna piss on something. Then I'm gonna go drink a little bit. Then probably take another piss on a couple other things. Yeah. You, well, you won't come, or are you still up your th- no. fairy's ass. No, no, no. We got we got stuff. Uh, we're working stuff out for the fairy. All right, working stuff out's a weird way to put it. All right. Well, if you need me, I'm gonna be pissing while I walk for the next half mile. After that, I'll okay. be down tavern, and then I'll, I'll be around pissing stuff later all over the place. Okay. Good to meet really y'all. Great meeting you. Great. Really great. 18 men then moved into the farmhouse and began preparations for attacking Harper's Ferry. John attempted to bring in more recruits and even wrote to Frederick Douglass, but Frederick Douglass refused the invitation, believing that it was a suicide mission. The farmhouse quickly became a, quote, barracks, arsenal, supply depot, mess hall, debate club, and home. So what we have here is the anti-slavery fight club. That's right. Yeah. They've set up their own infrastructure now. They're like, they're an organization. They're per- uh, they certainly are. And, um, and because there's 18 dudes living in a house, which isn't a... Uh, uh, it's not really something you want people to see. Yeah. Um, they didn't want people to become suspicious of that. So John invited, invited several of his daughters and daughter-in-laws to live and act as lookouts. Okay. Um, so he instructed volunteers to stay indoors during the day. So not to arouse suspicion after several months of prep, the day approached. John and his team of volunteers resigned to the possibility of their deaths. And they sent, they wrote and sent their final letters to their families. Okay. On October 15th, 1859, John announced that the revolution would begin. (laughs) Gentlemen, I have an announcement. My guess is he stood up, right? 
Yeah, I would think he stood up. You can't okay. do that sitting Sorry, down. John. Continue, sir. Oh, I was going to say something, and I stood up, and it was the right time, but now I've, I sat back down, so it's not. No, John. John, I'm sorry. No, but you interrupted me. I, I stood up with a flurry. I stood up John, with a flurry, as I, I do. Another you know flurry. when I stand up with a flurry, I'm going to make a big thing. I'm going to do a big thing when I stand up with a flurry. This I is stood good. up with a flurry. This stand up now. And then you said something. No. God damn it, now I'm up again. Yes. Listen, you sons of bitches. It's time for the revolution. Now. It's beginning. Tomorrow. We're doing this. As I have always said, as my words have always come to me, from my spirit, the shit is gonna fucking kick off. Signed, now, John Brown. I see, what's amazing is part of the way through that, I was like, this is a real quote. <laughs> uh, the next morning, he led a Bible service in the farmhouse. He read his favorite verses and prayed for divine aid in liberating enslaved blacks. Tasks were assigned to each volunteer. Some men were to stay at the farmhouse to help distribute weapons, while the rest were split into pairs in order to march six miles to Harper's Ferry. And I'll One stay back. Job was I, can, I don't know if you remember me. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. There's a coward's the other- ditch behind the there's a coward's ditch behind the farmhouse. We built that for you to get in, Larry. No, I was suggesting the coward's ditch. But I was suggesting yeah, is maybe someone should no. who's gonna take care of the shoes and the soup. You are you are. You're you're the Austrian right. that okay. always. So there we go. So we've that's we've got closure. It's great. I don't know why you guys are really like kind of cold to me lately. Like let's well, do this. Uh, I'm on you're board. You're a coward. You're you're a, a coward. Somebody so a, has to mind the shoes. Yes. There's someone has to be a coward. Yeah, we get it. I, mean, I think history history will look yeah. back fondly upon what I've yeah. done for you, gentlemen. Oh, for sure. No, history, you're going to get a big old plaque. Yeah. Fun can dream, can't say. Yeah. Uh, one pair is going to cut the telegraph wires. Another pair of men would imprison the ferry bridge watchman. Another <laughs> pair would guard the bridge until morning. Uh, the same would happen at, at the Shenandoah Bridge. Two were ordered to capture the engine house, and another two would capture an armory. There were three pairs uh, who would roam the surrounding countryside to free slaves and imprison their masters. This all began at 8 p.m. that night. It's quite a plan. So the plan had a pretty smooth start. Um, The bridge was captured. The guards were taken prisoner. The armory was seized. Uh, It was all a success. Easy to do. Okay. When one watchman refused to turn over his key, one of John's men forced the door open with a crowbar. John, who at this point had now grown out a long snow white beard and looked, quote, like an apostle, stared into the uncooperative watchman's eyes and said, quote, I came here from Kansas and this is a slave state. I want to free all the Negroes in this state. And if the citizens interfere with me, I must only burn the town and have blood. Don't use one of your spells on me, Merlin. (laughs) So I feel like that would freak anybody out. I'd be like, yeah, no, take the keys. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. You know, I'm actually going to look at the ground. I was actually just going to join this group and I'm ready to do so. You guys are intense. This is nice. I'm going to grow in my beard. Uh, So it took them about two hours to control the armory and have the entire arsenal. So now they have all the... Not bad. So as I should say, the guns are being made in this town, and then they're brought to the the armory where they're stored, and then they're shipped out, right? So So now he has control of the armory. Right. So 
In the countryside, the other six men reached the farm of Colonel Lewis Washington, who was the great-grandnephew of George Washington. Okay. Now, they were specifically sent there because of what they had, what he had. At midnight, they took the colonel and forced him to hand over the famous Lafayette pestle. We've talked about Lafayette before on this podcast, uh-huh. haven't we? Uh, he was a French gentleman who fought in the uh, American Revolutionary War, and uh, uh, Washington loved him. Um, and then also, what, what else Lewis Washington had? This is all hand, handed down from George. Uh-huh. He also had a sword of Frederick the Great. Okay. Who is Frederick? So they're sent to this random firehouse near Harper's Ferry to get this pistol and the sword. Because besides just freeing the slaves, there's also, uh, there, I think this goes to the fear factor. Like, oh, they've all, like. They'll take anything. When you, when, you would hear, when you would hear this stuff, if you were out someplace, you'd be like, oh, they have a grander plan. Like, they're actually, they're actually gathering things, known objects. Uh, so as I said, these things have been given to George Washington, and now they were in the hands of a, an ex-slave named Anderson, who was, of course, a black man. Okay. Very symbolic. Right. Uh, the colonel's slaves were declared free, and he and his family were taken captive. Their next, Which is uh, the group's next, the greatest, the greatest turnaround. Yeah. <laughs> Wait well, a minute. What well, do you mean? Uh, they can do whatever they want, and you're coming with us, fuckface. <laughs> so their next stop was another farm where they broke in, seized the farmer and his young son, and freed their six slaves. The freed blacks were all assigned to watch over their former masters to ensure they, they couldn't escape. Oh, my God. Just Now, all this, this information, stuff is coming back to John, what they've done, how the plans are working, and he's starting to feel confident. But then problems started uh, to arise. John's men had been ordered to only use violence when necessary, while some freed slaves gladly accepted weapons and joined John's army, those at the farmhouses did not. They retreated back to their master's farms in fear. Interesting. So it's so this goes back to your this yeah, goes back yeah. to your previous point and the argument he had with Hugh Forbes. Yeah, but he thought that everyone would fight, and I and that's yeah. that's a huge flaw in this plan. So the captured the captured uh, slaveholders are taken to the armory and held. So John stayed with the hostages in the armory and waited for the insurrection to come to life. He envisioned over 200 newly freed slaves and would join him by the end of the night. Uh, sorry, I read that wrong. He, he in, envisioned over 200 newly freed slaves would join him by the end of the night. So he sent people to all these farms and all yeah. these places, expecting. larger plantations, smaller ones, knowing the number of slaves that are there and expecting that to become an armed force that then is then going to create a larger fight. Well, that's not happening. Um, there's only about 30 new recruits at this point. Wow. And without all these freed slaves, things are falling apart. The, the plan can't expand. John's men at this point recommend taking the wagons they had seized, which is three wagons of weapons. So that's a lot of fucking guns. Yeah. And they say, let's pull back, let's retreat. And then we'll, and then, you know, go to the next phase of the plan. Uh, John did not. Townspeople learned a group of black and white men were trying to take over Harper's Ferry, but they had no idea who was leading the raid. Locals armed themselves and received the backing of two militia companies from nearby towns. The next morning, local militia farmers... What? Militia companies? 
Oh, I yeah, see what so you're saying. Sorry. Right. Okay. Sorry. Local militias. Yeah. Sorry. In my head, they were like, you need a militia? Call the militia company. We've got a bunch of militias and we'll hire them out to you for an afternoon. Militia company. Uh, we're pretty upfront about our business. The next morning, local militia farmers and shopkeepers surrounded the armory after locals realized it had been seized. Now, okay, so there's this is where the, the Shenandoah River bisects the Potomac River. Okay. And so it's like a corner. So Harpers Ferry is like in a corner there. And there's one bridge over the Potomac and there's one bridge over the Shenandoah. And then the armory is right there along the water. Uh, and then up a little ways, up the Shenandoah a little bit, not too far, very close. It's like part of the town, but still up a little ways, is the rifle works where the guns are made. Hmm. Uh, and the rifle works are sort of separated from the mainland by a 20-foot-wide canal that kind of works as a natural moat. Okay, right. Three of John's men had taken over the rifle works. Wow. And they were able to hold off one of the militias. Basically, because the moat's there. They can just shoot each other. No one's going to try to rush across the moat. Right. Right. Right? Yeah. Um, that's, that's the moat theory. Exactly. Uh, so there were men posted on bridges and other locations, but the bulk of uh, John's men were now in the armory, posted up. And now the armory is, I don't know, think of it as like a fort, right? There's different buildings, and there's a gate and whatnot. So they're all posted up behind a high iron, iron rail walls or pylons or inside the firehouse with the hostages. Mm-hmm. One of the militias arrived from the west and saw the three men on the B&O bridge, and those two groups start shooting at each other. So now we have our first gunfire right. happening, being, tra- it's happening. Uh, being gun- gunshots being traded. Now, Dangerfield Newby was a black man. And he was there with John Brown because he dreamed of freeing his still enslaved wife and children. He had himself already been freed by his white owner slash father. Oh, okay. Dangerfield had been given a price to purchase the freedom of his wife and seven children by their owner. And he raised the money and then went to the owner. And then the owner uh, said, no, that's not enough. And said the agreed-on price that he'd been working towards for years was not enough to free his wife and kids. So Dangerfield Newby uh, then realized, well, the only way to do this is by force. Uh, so he was now part of John's raid, with his hope being to free his family by force. Uh, he's the oldest. He's 44, and he's also the largest. He's 6'2". So the people of Harper's Ferry made guns... But they did not have ammunition. Oh, the best. So they started grabbing anything they could fit into a gun barrel. And this also includes the guys in the militia. What? One man. Oh, dear. I, in, I mean, I'm a, I can't believe I'm about to hear what makeshift bullets were in this time. My taste. A six-inch six six? spike. A spike? A spike. He a found a six-inch inch spike. He made a torpedo. He made a harpoon. A small torpedo. Yeah, I'm sorry, harpoon. So Dangerfield was shot by one of these spikes. Ugh. It hit him in the throat, Ugh. ripping it from ear to ear and killing him instantly. God damn. The mob, when they got a hold of Dangerfield's body, they cut off his ears and testicles, they poked sticks into his bullet wounds, and they shoved his body into a gutter where it could be eaten by hogs. Oh. 
Another militia arrived and took over the bridge over the Shenandoah. So now both bridges are held by pro-slavery Harper's Ferry people. This shuts off all escape routes for John. So that plan where the guys said, let's take the wagons and get, yeah. get the fuck out of here while no one owns, that's fucking, that's over. That shit that's is- never going to happen. It stops anyone from coming also from the Maryland side to rescue them. So, so now they're, it's pretty much the hands dealt. Yeah. Townspeople now gathered in the square on the porch of the hotel and on the platform of the train station. Inside the firehouse, John had 30 hostages, so he tried to negotiate. Two men came out of the fire. Two hostages came out of the firehouse holding a white flag. Oh, no, sorry. Two men came out of the firehouse holding a white flag. One was Will Thompson, who's John's son-in-law. Um, they also had a message telling them that John would free the hostages if his men were given safe passage across the Potomac River. But the uh, crowd did not hear the, uh, the message because they rushed and attacked them, and they beat Will, and they dragged him to the hotel. The other man was slapped and beaten, as well as made to take drinks from their bottles. Because at this point, many of the townspeople were drunk. Just, Jesus Christ. <laughs> it's happening again. The drinking's back. It, it's like, what if Rush Week was an era? Yeah. <laughs> so, yes. John and his men moved the 11 most important hostages to his engine house, a sturdy structure with three heavy oak doors, and then John tried to negotiate again. He sent his son Watson, Aaron Stevens, and another hostage holding a white flag. This time, the crowd just shot Watson and Stevens, who collapsed. They had been shot in the face and the body. Watson somehow managed to get up to his knees and drag himself into the firehouse. Stevens, however, could not move. Then a hostage came out of the firehouse, picked up Watson, uh, oh no, picked up Stevens, and took him to the hotel. Uh, helped him for a little bit, and then the hostage returned back to the firehouse. That's an interesting... Uh, of- one of John's sons would write uh, that he thought that was because they were about to give up or a, a negotiation was happening, but he, he was watching from afar, and he was like, so something, there's no reason a guy would go back unless a, an end was near. Oh, okay, I see what you're saying. Okay, right. Still, kind of uh, a wild the, move. Now, the crowd is growing larger and larger. People are hearing about this all over. They're coming. They're drinking more and more. Uh, Willie Lehman of Maine, who's just 20 years old, he had, he had known the Browns since he was 14, didn't have a great family life and he sort of attached to them and he came along he climbed out the rear window of the firehouse and slipped between the bars of the wall and ran for the railroad tracks he made it all the way to the potomac and he waded in and just then someone in the mob saw him and yelled the men on the railroad platform began shooting down as Willie swam for Maryland. He made it about 50 feet before he was shot. He then turned back and climbed upon a rock near the shore. A man named George Shoppert waded out to Lehman, who was on the rock, and Lehman pleaded, quote, don't shoot, I surrender. Shoppert then shot Lehman point blank in the face as he smiled. For the next few hours, from uh, the platform, people would shoot down at Willie's body. Meanwhile, John's men now cut holes in the walls of the firehouse and started shooting out. An unarmed man walked on the railroad 
loading trestle, got down on By the way, what are the odds that one drunk guy just rolled up there and put his penis in one of those holes? 100%. Okay, thank you. Keep going. One hundo. Uh, Another man walked on the railroad trestle, got down on a knee, and looked into the armory through a door. The door, or through a crack. The door of the farmhouse then opened, and Edwin Coppock shot the man. John, uh, Oliver Brown was besides him. That's one of John's sons. Mm-hmm. And then another man who now had climbed onto the loading trestle shot Oliver in the chest. <clears throat> so now the crowd goes crazy because these raiders had shot an unarmed man. Mm-hmm. Okay, interesting. So John's son-in-law, Will Thompson, was dragged from the hotel while they beat and screamed at him. They made him walk out on the B&O bridge, and then they shot him many times from close range. His body was then thrown in the river where it snagged on driftwood, and once again, men from above shot at his body over and over. So it's like, it's like midday now. Like a lot of the days pass. Remember, there's those guys up near the, the rifle works who, who three men in there, and there's the militia shooting at them. But now everyone's getting drunk. So a lot of these towns guys, uh, they are shit-faced, and they start heading up towards the rifle works. So they got that drunk confidence going around. And they are like, we got to get in there and get those. Can't rifles. be that hard to get in there. Yeah, just go through the water park. Where's case? Let's get in there. So now there's more guys. They're pushing to get in. They're drunk and angry. And the shooting uh, it goes up, up quite a bit. The townspeople then charge the back door and hit it with a battering ram. Then everybody charged in. The militia, the townspeople. Inside the three guys, there's one white guy, two black guys. They climb out a window facing the river. They drop down into the water. From up above, they shoot at them. John Kagi, who was the white guy, uh, died almost immediately and sunk into the river. Louis Leary was hit by several shots, but not killed. He made it down to the shore, uh, a bit down the river, where he was pulled out and put into custody. But he's pretty shot up. John Copeland Jr., a free black man who joined the fight, got to a large rock in the middle of the river. There he was seen and shot at from two different places. He raised his hands up until a rowboat came out and he was taken prisoner. I mean, um, John this, Cook, this is not going well, obviously. <laughs> no, it's not going well. Uh, John Cook was on the other side of the Potomac and did not know what was happening. He climbed a tree overlooking the town and shot near the mob to divert their attention. They shot back, and one of the bullets snapped a branch beneath him, and he fell 15 feet to the ground and limped away. He was taken in by an Irish family. Now, remember, this is the guy that lived there, so he clearly knew people. Right. Uh, an Irish family took him in, and they told him all but seven of the men in John's army were dead. Cook accepted defeat and found four members of John's army, including John's uh, son Owen, at uh, at the schoolhouse hideout. So they had a plan. They had plans to hide out in different places, and those men all escaped together and went north through the wilderness. John's son Oliver, he was the one who was shot in the chest. Uh-huh. Uh, he had been bleeding out since being shot through the door. He begged John uh, to shoot him and put him out of his misery. John refused and said, quote, if you must die, die like a man. All right. That's some, uh, that's some old school parent. That's, that's daddy issues. <laughs> that's nothing to do with the moment. 
so John's men are still shooting out the holes in the wall. George Turner, a powerful landowner, was shot and killed. Shortly after, the slave-owning mayor, known for his kindness towards blacks, was shot and killed. The mob is now becoming hysterical. Several witnesses said many, if not most of them, were now very, very drunk. So, like, so, if they get shot, like, just beer comes out more than blood. <laughs> yeah, oh, no. Much. My vitals. Uh, and then other guys drink it. It's a I whole... I got thing. it. Don't worry, Teddy. You're going to be <laughs> delicious. Oh, oh, a train arrives, and it stops just out of town. It's another militia. No shit. Uh, they march. They march in formation to the firehouse, and they were carrying scaling ladders. They put oh, them on the back fence of the armory and climbed over, and they were halfway across the yard before Brown and his men saw them. Most of the hostages were liberated by this raid, uh, but the remaining uh, men of John's army fired into the crowd until the militia commander ordered them to retreat. So when That's the evening win. came, yeah, uh, so when the evening came, negotiation was attempted for the third time. Samuel Strider approached the armory with a white flag, and he delivered a summons of surrender to surrender from Colonel Robert Baylor. John replied with the same terms he'd release the hostages if he and his men could cross the Potomac unharmed. Then Captain Thomas Sin, who was a militia guy, uh, spoke with John. At one point, John yelled out for Oliver. So the guy came to the armor, and he's actually talking to John. And John yells out for Oliver, and Oliver does not respond. And John said, quote, I guess he is dead. John made the same demands, and they were once again rejected. At 11 p.m., 90 Marines led by Colonel Robert E. Lee arrived. The company broke down the engine house door, and Marines squeezed through the hole. John was dragged out of the firehouse, covered in so much blood, observers assumed he was already dead. He was taken to an office in the armory and banished. Reporters surrounded and questioned John. To every question, he repeated the same response. He thought slavery was wrong, so he tried to stop it. It's very strange to have this, like, it has like a post-game vibe. Yeah, it does. Like, it's weird right? that he, yeah, that like, like he's like a boxer or something where it's just like, well, what, what do you think uh, cost you the match out there today? Well, you know, they had a lot more men. I mean, it's just kind of. If the army could get there, certainly reporters could get there. So, yeah, it's like a whole, it's definitely got a, it's definitely got a post game vibe. It's weird. But yeah, it sure. is. It is really weird. Um, so, and I like, he, he's right. Yeah. He's right. I did this because slavery is fucking wrong. And he's basically, he's basically pointing the finger at everyone who's not doing anything with that statement. What are you guys doing? Southern journalists and reporters could not fathom how a white man could be so sympathetic towards slaves. And this is the N-word coming. Uh, a Southern officer asked John, quote, suppose you had every nigger in the United States, what would you do? And John sternly responded, set them free. Yeah. So to this, them that's shocking. And, and they, they, they literally can't wrap their brain around it. Right. They, they literally cannot understand this thought process because to them, that's chaos. Like you're literally saying, I want chaos in the street. Right. Right. Lewis, Lewis Sheridan Leary died of his wounds the following morning. He was one of the guys in the rifle house who got shot and they picked up okay. within a week. Articles about the raid at Harper's Ferry made headlines across the country. 
The Baltimore American reported that John Brown showed no signs of weakness, even with the gallows staring him full in the face. John remained so dignified after being captured that slave owners praised him once they saw him in person. One pro-slavery man said, quote, Captain John Brown has coolness, daring persistency, stoic faith and patience, and firmness of will and purpose unconquerable. Certainly is, was one of the best planned and best executed conspiracies that ever failed. It's pretty, I mean, quite an impact <laughs> to be able to get those lines out of those people. Well, uh, at some point you have to respect right. the enemy. Total conviction, yeah. Southerners didn't agree with any of John, his abolitionist views, obviously, but they were moved by his admirable qualities of toughness, honor, and daring. He had the characteristics of a, quote, true Southern gentleman. Right. Right. Uh, so the South was conflicted and confused. What would they do with the shockingly impressive abolitionists? So on October 18th, Virginia Governor Harry Wise, Virginia Senator James Mason, and Ohio Representative Clement Vallingham conducted a three-hour question. Governor Wise admitted, quote, John Brown is a bundle of the best nerves I ever saw cut and thrust and bleeding and in bonds. He is a man of clear head, of courage, fortitude, and simple ingeniousness. He is a fanatic, vain, garrulous, but firm, truthful, and intelligent. But just so wrong. I mean, just shockingly off on this one. John was taken to Charlestown Prison to await trial. John's once northern abolitionist friends now completely distanced themselves in fear of arrest. There we go. Frederick Douglass fled the country. Others denied having any association with John for the rest of their lives. Wow. Jesus. On October 25th, John was arraigned. He was escorted by 80 militiamen. He was arraigned on three charges. Conspiracy to incite a slave insurrection. Shouldn't be a crime. Treason against the state of Virginia and first degree murder. Uh, when he was making his plea, John declared, quote, under no circumstances will I be able to have a fair trial. If you seek my blood, you can have it. I am ready for my fate. I ask to be excused from this mockery of a trial. He was basically saying the state, slave state of Virginia could not give him a fair trial. Great way to handle it, too, because that is so true. Yeah, he refused to be insulted, quote, by cowardly barbarians who fall into power. Now, hold on there a minute, mister. <laughs> You're not allowed to choose to the death penalty now. We will assign it upon you know process completion. Okay, here, let, let's just he, hear me out. You're worthless, in my view. You're shit people. And just kill me and get it over with. Have your little shit trial and your little shit state and you shit people. Say what you want to say. And no, no. Put, put the bullet in my head or whatever you're going to do. We, well, we will do that upon <laughs> conclusion of your trial. We want you and to have you, a fair trial. Can you sign the verdict shit trial done by shit beasts can you do that for me is that possible no not if the notary is to do his job no 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 that's a shit notary 
Okay. From a shit uh, place. All right. Now, just <laughs> you are a slippery pickle. I'll tell you that much. Uh, so your whole system. Yeah, well, I, I would like to talk for a minute. The whole foundation is built upon the money begotten from a crime. So you're, you cannot judge me. You literally are unable to I'm judge, judge me. I'm a judge. My one yeah, job is... I don't recognize your whole fucking shit building. Look at the, look at the thing I'm wearing and the nothing gavel. There. Nothing there. I have the wood thing to hit the gavel upon. No, nothing there. Nothing there. I mean, I, well, I, this is a first by a mile. Nothing there. You're just an asshole saying words. Nobody cares. You are free to go. What the fuck did I just say? <laughs> yes. Shit. Oh. Shit. So great. You fucked up. Uh, so John's lawyers who were assigned to him tried to plead not guilty by reason of insanity. And John was like, hey, guys, I'm not insane. I think slavery is illegal. Uh, I think it's uh, an, an abomination. So I'm, I'm actually the one who is sane. Oh, boy. Well, he's far gone. He's actually insane, which we did not count on. And he said he would not lie in court and say he wasn't saying. So the lawyers are like, uh, well, John, let me just tell you what you've done to our playbook. You've just shit in it and thrown it in a fire. Uh, so he is found guilty on all three charges in a 45 minute trial and sentenced to death by hanging. God damn, that's a fast trial. Ralph Waldo Emerson wrote in his journal, quote, if John Brown is hung, the gallows will be sacred as the cross. Hey, thanks for all the help, Emerson. <laughs> I'm writing. I did what I could. Uh, on December 20, uh, on December 2nd, 1859, John wrote his final will in his cell. Quote, I, John Brown, am now quite certain that the crimes of this guilty land will never be purged away but with blood. I had, as I now think, vainly flattered myself that without very much bloodshed, it might be done. John refused to see a minister because he denounced any pro-slavery clergyman. How could you be a clergyman if you believed in slavery? Yes, fair. Isn't it crazy how religions always made so much sense? (laughs) At 11 a.m., he was walked through a crowd of 3,000 soldiers. The gallows were in a small field. Stonewall Jackson and John Wilkes Booth were there, as was Walt Whitman. And John Brown was hanged at 11.15 a.m. On December 8th, six days later, he was laid to rest in North Elba, New York, where he always wanted to be buried. His funeral was attended by family members and close friends. After John Brown's death, tensions in the South heightened because slave owners owners had grown paranoid and worried that other abolitionists would try to lead larger and more successful slave rebellions. The South reorganized and strengthened its militia system to placate its white citizens' fears. On April 12, 1861, 16 months after John's execution, Southern forces opened fire on Fort Sumner in Charleston, South Carolina, and the Civil War had officially begun. So it's really believed that John Brown was a big part of that moving towards a actual war. Conflict. Right. He, 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 like he did in Kansas for America, he took it up a notch right. 
And once the whites in the South realized, oh, wait, these guys will actually bring the fight to us, well, then a a switch flipped in a lot of their minds. This letter was found on Dangerfield Newby's body after the Harper's Ferry Raid. Dear Husband, I want you to buy me as soon as possible, for if you do not get me, somebody else will. The servants are very disagreeable. They do all that they can to set my mistress against me. Dear husband, you are not the trouble I see these last two years. It has been like a troubled dream to me. It is said that the master is in want of money. If so, I know not what time he may sell me. Then all my bright hopes of the future are blasted. For there has been one bright hope to cheer me in all my troubles, that it is to be with you. For if I thought I should never see you on this earth, life would have no charm for me. Do all you can for me, which I have no doubt you will. I want to see you so much. The children are all well. The baby cannot walk yet. The baby can step around anything by holding onto it, very much like Agnes. I must bring my letter to close, as I have no news to write. You must write soon and say when you think you can come. Your affectionate wife, Harriet Newby. So just a dude who has a kid who's just learning to walk, six other kids doing all sorts of other things. And he just wanted to not be a slave or have his family be owned by other people. That's all. Uh, 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 I think one thing about John Brown, I think that he's obviously a really, I think he might be America's greatest hero. Um, but I also think that the men with him, the Lewis Learys and the, and the Dangerfield newbies get kind of left out of, uh, the whole thing. And great. You know, there were a lot of white men that fought along with John Brown and there were a lot of black men that fought along with John Brown. And that's how you fucking do it. That's how you do it. Um, let's read the names. John Henry Cagey, Jeremiah Anderson, William Thompson, Dauphin Thompson, Oliver Brown, Watson Brown, Stuart Taylor, Willie Lehman, Louis Leary, Dangerfield Newby. Uh, These are the men who were captured and then executed. John Brown, Aaron Stevens, Edwin Coppock, Anthony Copeland, Shields Green, John Edwin Cook, who was, he escaped, he was one of the guys who escaped, he was captured in um, Pennsylvania uh, a few days later. Albert Hazlitt. Um, these men escaped and were never caught. Barkley Coppock, Charles Plummer, Tid, Osborne Anderson, Owen Brown, and Francis Jackson Merriam. And then um, as far as the men on the other side who were killed, who gives a fuck? Yeah. A giant pile of rusting, rotting bodies that deserve no mention. Oh, fuck. That letter is something. Cool times. All right. All right. Carry on. Say, say, what do we say? Say, don't. What's a car? Uh, sources, The Legend of John Brown, A Biography and History by Richard Boyer, John Brown, uh, W. Dubois, uh, John Brown, Abolitionist, The Man Who Killed Slavery, Sparked the Civil War, and Seated Civil Rights, David Reynolds, 
The Great Lives Observed, John Brown, Richard Warch, and uh, Jonathan Fanton. Uh, article, John Brown's Day of Reckoning, The Abolitionist Bloody Raid. Smithsonian Magazine, Fergus Bordwich. Unflinching in the Washington Post by uh, Deneen Brown. Hey there, people listening to The Dollop. Uh, this is Gareth. Yes, the same guy. I Listen, I have a new podcast called We're Here to Help that I'm doing with my friend Jake Johnson. It's basically a call and advice show where we don't say that we're professionals because we aren't, but we try to help people with problems that are important to them. You can listen to it wherever you listen to podcasts, and it is out right now. So go listen to We're Here to Help with Jake and Gareth. We're here to help with Gareth and Jake. I don't remember how we did it, but either way, fun. Half Hour comes out Tuesday, August 22nd, and the episodes will be out every Tuesday and Friday. We're here to help. Oh, hey there, everybody. It's Gareth, you know, from this uh, this podcast. Uh, listen, I've got some stand-up shows. I'm inviting the Garmy, the Gareth Army, to join me for. I will be in Fort Collins, Colorado, August 18th and August 19th. I will be in Minneapolis, Minnesota, August 24th through August 26th at Acme. I will be going to the UK in September. Please join me. I will be in Glasgow, September 13th, London, September 15th, Dublin, September 17th, September 19th, Manchester, Birmingham, September 20th, Bristol, September 22nd, and Cardiff, September 24th. And then in November, I'll be in Australia. November 10th, almost sold out, I think. I'll be in Melbourne, Australia. Then I will be in Northbridge, Australia on November 15th. Adelaide, November 16th. Canberra, November 17th. Brisbane, November 18th. And then I will be in uh, Sydney on November 24th. Go to GarethReynolds.com for tickets. Garmy, let's get at it after it. Let's see you there.